Hello and welcome to Germany Now, a podcast from the Cambridge DAAD Hub, the nerve center for German studies at the University of Cambridge. This is our second episode and I'm delighted to say that our guest today is Dr. Andreas Kossart. Andreas is the author of prize-winning books on a number of historical themes. His first major study was a history of the region known as Masuria, a region to the south of what we now call Kaliningrad, but was once known as Königsberg, and inhabited by a fascinating population of Polish-speaking Protestants. So the Masurians were the subject of his first study. And next came a history of East Prussia, Ostpreußen, and then a book that attracted a huge amount of interest in Germany, a book with the title Kalte Heimat, Cold Homeland, a strange and apparently paradoxical title, which destroyed a myth about what happened to German refugees at the end of and after the end of the Second World War. The myth was that millions of expellees were warmly welcomed into West Germany as fellow Germans. But Andreas shows that, in fact, this was far from the truth, that the process of finding a home, a space in West German society was actually extremely difficult, and the resistance to these refugees was far more prolonged than we might have expected. Andreas has won many prizes for his work, including the Georg Dehio Prize and the NDR Kultur Sachbuch Prize and various other distinctions. But he's here today to talk about his latest book, Flucht, eine Menschheitsgeschichte, which means something like refugees, a global history, a history of humanity. Andreas, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, hello from Berlin, and thank you for having me. Andreas, in, in recent years, we've faced the so-called European migrant crisis, also known as the Syrian refugee crisis of the 2010s, which reached a peak in 2015. How does the current Ukrainian refugee crisis shape up against that background? Well, um, currently Putin's Russia is writing yet another chapter of displacement in the history of mankind. And what we see is displacement in the heart of Europe on a scale unseen since World War II. And I just checked uh, the recent numbers and there are more than 11 million Ukrainians at the moment displaced, almost 7 million internally displaced and 3.5 million who have actually fled the country already. So this actually shows the dimension we are facing right now. And I just came back from Berlin Central Station, which has actually been transformed into a provisional refugee welcome center and, and shelter. And if you look at this hyper-modern 21st century station building, you are all of a sudden witnessing very archaic scenes of people who are just leaving the trains from Warsaw with just a rucksack and maybe the children just carrying a teddy bear. What an extraordinary sight in the heart of Berlin. I want to come back to Ukraine and I want to talk more about the, the current refugee crisis. But let's first of all track back and talk a little bit about the themes of your book, Flucht, eine Menschheitsgeschichte. Because although refugees are very much in the news today, this is also, as you show, a very old story. In fact, it's as old as human history itself. Where does the history, the recorded history of refugees begin? I think the first written accounts are actually going back to the Bible. And the Bible is actually telling the story of exile, deportation, and also homesickness. So we have actually a documented history of refugees dating back to a few thousand years ago. And it has been an integral part of 
global history ever since. So, so in other words, what you're saying is that the, the plight of the refugee can be framed in a theological way, or, or at least it, it has a religious dimension. How important has that dimension been in the reactions that people had to plight of refugees? I was always wondering why there's actually so much resentment towards refugees. And I think the arrival of refugees actually remind so-called host societies of the possibility of being uprooted themselves. And I think that is what refugees and their narratives remind all of us. It could also happen to us. What an interesting idea. In your book, you choose not to do something that historians of a certain kind might do, namely to tell your story chronologically. You don't sort of say it starts with the Bible and then we move on to you know, the Greeks and Romans and then we have the Renaissance and you don't do any of that. Instead, you break your story, the human story of flight into exile or the refugee experience into five thematic components, leaving, departure, weggehen, ankommen, arriving, weiterleben, surviving, living on, innern, remembering. And then the question, wann ist man angekommen? When has the refugee arrived? When does the place, the new place, become home? So why did you pick out these themes? First of all, I really wanted to show that refugees are an integral part of global history. And I think too often overlooked because they have no pressure groups, no lobbying actually who actually supports them. And I wanted to see the world through refugees' eyes. And that was important for me actually to show how refugees actually shaped our world. And what I also wanted to try with my rather individual narratives is to overcome the anonymous collectives. For instance, the United Nations was publishing for last year 83 million refugees worldwide. And when I hear such numbers, I feel helpless. What can we do? It's a population of Germany, 83 million refugees worldwide. And we know the United Nations is trying to create awareness by actually publishing such numbers. But I wanted to overcome the sheer numbers and actually choose individual narratives, which are essential to my book, and actually to place refugees as subjects of history and, and provide them with a strong voice. And we can actually see that solidarity and empathy are often not sustainable. And the key question is really, everyone could be a refugee at some point. As Rupert Neudeck said, who was himself a refugee, and he was a founder of Cap Anamur to help boat people in the 1970s and 80s. And I think it's very important to change our perspectives, to show experiences all refugees share. For example, what does it mean to leave your home for good? What do you take with you if you have five minutes? And this is a key challenge for all refugees. And of course, knowing once you have left, you have no possibility to return to, to maybe collect the things you forgot. And what means arriving after the physical arrival and not being welcomed, the shock living in camps or transition centers, and also living on is difficult. It's a challenge for all refugees because it could mean integration, assimilation, or living in, in exile. And I think we have a very materialistic understanding of integration. I think we should actually really look at individual stories to see that refugees 
from the outside look like they have fully integrated into a host society, but they might have mentally somehow remained in exile. And the other, the fourth dimension is remembering. And we can actually see forced migration is a process which can actually be passed on also to a second and third generation. And this all together is actually what I'm trying to tell in my book. And the last question, when do refugees arrive? also underlines it's a very individual and very often painful process. And it's not set in stone, especially by those who actually haven't been through the refugee experience themselves. Fascinating. Well, if you look now at how the current crisis around the Ukraine is being handled, how would you evaluate the response to the current situation? I think it was a shock for Europe that something like this was actually happening in the heart of Europe, and we don't know the outcome yet. But at the moment, there's an overwhelming solidarity with refugees from Ukraine all over Europe. And Joe Biden actually said that even America, the United States, would take um, 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. So this is actually showing the strong solidarity, but we don't know the outcome yet. And what about the German response? I mean, you mentioned the the scenes at Berlin Hauptbahnhof. How has the German government responded to this predicament? It shows again that refugees and their arrival is nothing you can plan. It's provisional. It remains improvised. And these are the circumstances refugees find themselves in. And what I just noticed at Berlin Hauptbahnhof is it is again archaic, as I said. You know, it is hypermodern, the surroundings. But what a refugee arriving from, from Warsaw needs is shelter, is a bed, is food. And at the moment, it's mostly organized by volunteer organizations, so by charities. So you think there's room for a, a more robust government response? Yes, I would think so. But what I find interesting in this particular case is Ukrainians really want to go back as soon as possible. So that's why they're actually quite hesitant in actually going further away from Ukraine. And that's why most of them are actually staying, in, for instance, in Poland. That is really, really remarkable. And it shows the spirit of the Ukrainians that they really want to, to return to their country. Of course, Poland has come under particular pressure. I believe the number now in Poland is 2.2 million. So it's an extraordinary number for a country of that size. How are the Poles coping and how are the Hungarians coping? Or, I mean, are there any interesting contrasts to be drawn between the responses of different neighboring or or nearby European states? I think in all neighboring countries, what we see right now is that civil society has acted immediately. So it is really a civil society project. It's not that much governments responding, but for instance, in Poland, it's mostly civil society. So the local people actually take refugees into their private homes. And that's the same in Hungary. But all of a sudden, Poland realized, and the Polish government, that they are part of Europe and they need Europe. And Europe is part of another identity. And it's not just an economic union. So in Poland, this crisis is generating a stronger sense of solidarity with the rest of the union, a stronger sense of membership. Is the same thing happening in Hungary? I don't know. But my impression so far is it is much more on the level of civil society and accepting refugees, welcoming refugees, but the government is actually still struggling to find a position towards sanctions towards Russia. So there's a split between 
Hungarian society and, and the Hungarian government. Yes, actually, this is, I suppose, when you put it in that way, one of the unusual qualities of this particular refugee situation, that it's overlaid by partisanship around an ongoing conflict, an ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine. That isn't always the case. That's to say, if you think about the refugees associated with the so-called refugee crisis, well, many of them came from Syria, which was, of course, a conflict zone, but not one in which Europeans felt it necessary to side with one side or another. But here, of course, it's a divisive conflict, especially in Central Europe. Yes, and all of a sudden, Europeans realized it happened on our doorstep and it could also happen to us. And I think that is really an eye-opener in many ways, I think. I think it's very interesting what you just said about the initiatives coming from civil society, because one of the points you make in your book is that ordinary people are the ones who are quick to take action. And this was the case for 2016 as well. The, you know, the volunteers who rescued people from the Mediterranean, and you mentioned Cap Anamur, States are much slower, are much more reluctant to take action. And sometimes, if you think about the Australian state, for example, sometimes they can lead the way in shutting borders down to refugees. Yes, it's very often the case. So sometimes it's actually civil society and private initiatives actually pushing their governments, actually. But I wouldn't criticize governments that much for being unable to cope because they are just responding more slowly, and private initiatives can actually come out to the main station in Berlin and and just start helping, you know, preparing food, bringing clothes, and it's working. And I think only now we realize the dimension of what we might still face with Ukrainian refugees. It is a process. We don't know yet what's going to happen. And this is also typical for refugee experiences, I would think. That's very interesting. I mean, I suppose what you're saying is in a way that volunteers are dealing with their own resources, which they're free to dispose of in any way they see fit, whereas governments are dealing with taxpayers' money. They have to legitimate any measures or expenditures that they make. It's a slower, more deliberative process. I wanted to come to another theme, which is very striking in your book. You reflect again and again on the particular place of women in the history of the refugee phenomenon of flight and exile, do they carry a special burden, do you think, in the history of the, I'm thinking now in general across the whole history of the phenomenon, and then perhaps if you could say something about the Ukrainian situation. So what we see now is actually, I would say, the more representative picture of what we saw in 2015. It's refugees are mostly women and children because they try to escape from war. And we see men fighting or being involved in war activities. And so I would always look at refugee stories as female experiences and also including, for instance, sexual violence, rape, and the brutality of actually having to manage to survive, um, looking after children, looking after other family members. That is the responsibility of women. And so I think actually Displacement has a female face and a female expression. Um, Finding shelter, organizing food. This is always or very often women's responsibilities. We have to bear in mind it's women and children and they are coming right now. And this is, I would say, the norm. And in 2015, there were many young men, but we shouldn't generalize it. So it was a different picture. And now what we see people coming from Ukraine is, let's say, the continuity of an old story of displacement. Very interesting. So in a sense, just reflecting on what you said about women, in a gender order where the tasks of caring fall to women, 
those tasks are not suspended when they're in a situation of displacement. So they wind up under a double burden. They've got to go through the, the entire experience of flight into exile, but they retain these responsibilities for elders, for children, and so on. That's the point you're making, that they have this extra burden. Absolutely. And, and this is actually what we always have to bear in mind. And I would say the majority of, of actually um, refugee stories are female stories. Looking through your book, I did a sort of list as I was going through reading it. It's not exhaustive, but it's just of the of the groups from whom you found interlocutors willing to share their stories. And these included Cubans, Tibetans, Cambodians, Germans, Jews, Lithuanians, Poles, Karelians, Burundians and Rwandans, Sinti and Roma people, Kurds, Armenians, Greeks, Syrians, Rohingya, Muslims, Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Masurians, Italians, Spanish Republicans, Bosnians. That's just part of the list. So this is a virtually universal human experience. I mean, we've been making this point all along. But can you think of examples of where the refugee problem was well solved and where it wasn't? <laughs> That's a very tricky question. And we have to question our understanding of what we mean by integration and arriving. And 14 million ethnic Germans arrived in what was left of Germany after the Second World War. And 75 years later, you can hardly see any differences. So actually, you would think, okay, mission accomplished, integration was a full success, but there are different layers which are well hidden for external observers. And I think that is important. And the post-war German example shows actually how painful the process was and were not even welcomed by their fellow Germans. And so that's why I'm a bit hesitant actually calling something very successful, which actually the majority of people actually considered as being successful because there was no trouble, there was no civil war, there was no problem like with Palestinians. But it is again a very individual process. And if you actually ask refugees from 1945, it was not just the process of being displaced, but also the cold welcome which was for them, they called it very often a second shock. You know, it was a shock not being welcomed by their fellow Germans. So it is very difficult to actually to say when is something very successful. Yeah, no, I'm sure that's right. In that connection, I wanted to ask you, is there a sense in which that experience is still a kind of latent trauma in the German population or has it passed with the generation that actually experienced expulsion and flight? Yeah, and in the second and third generation, we, we talk about almost 50% of all Germans have some sort of refugee background. And it was in 2015, I had the impression that all of a sudden, German society actually rediscovered that it actually has had something to do with their own family stories. And very often in 2015, people were comparing, oh, this happened to us too. You know, we know what it means to be displaced, homeless, homesick. And I don't have empirical base, but there are some people even in saying that the so-called welcome culture, the Willkommenskultur of 2015, had something to do with the collective refugee experience within German society. That's fascinating because there was a time in the 1950s and 60s when the whole theme was politically problematic because it was associated with the notion of a sort of revanchist German project to take back lands once lost, the verlorene Heimat, you know, the, the lost homelands of the East and so on, and the open quality of the Oder border and all that kind of thing. 
And then there was a moment in, in the history of the Bundesrepublik when that suddenly stopped and the, the subject matter was politically neutralized. And I think your writing on the Masurians and the East Prussians and Kalte Heimat then and now the experience of refugees has helped, has been a very important part of doing that, of pulling this subject matter out of a partisan dialogue and revealing that this is actually a human story, not a, a, some kind of right-wing myth. Is that true? Do you think that there's been a transition of that kind? Absolutely. What we see right now is actually it is transcending into, into a different dimension. Where we find it now is in personal narratives, but also in fiction. You have very famous novelists right now actually writing about refugee experiences in post-war Germany. So it was transformed into a different form of memory. And I think that's where it should be also. It is part of our collective identity, but it's no longer political. And I think we are more and more aware that refugee stories and displacement has something to do with German society. Can you give us some examples? And is it Böll, Lenz, uh, from the early years of the Bundesrepublik, Heimat Museum, that kind of thing? And how has literature been processing this experience from the 1950s right through to the more recent past? I find it really interesting to look at German post-war literature. And we have Günther Gras, we have Siegfried Lenz, Christa Wolf, also Hertha Müller. And so two of the most recent German Nobel Prize winners for literature, Günther Gras and Hertha Müller, came from areas, Günther Gras from Danzig, nowadays in Poland, and Hertha Müller from nowadays Romania. So actually, they are part of this ethnic German background, and they have been displaced, and it plays an integral part of, of, of their literature, of their way of writing, coming to terms with their loss. And I remember Günter Grass once said in an interview that without actually having lost his hometown Danzig, he, he would never become a writer, because it was for him very important, and Danzig plays the most important role in his work. And coming to terms with the loss and what it, does it mean for his identity. I think it's very powerful, actually, the voice of literature and showing writers who actually have been through this themselves. So it's a, it's a way of coming to terms for them too. So I wonder if the extraordinary stress and pain that the Ukrainians are now experiencing will also extrude art, literature, perhaps uh, movies, you know, whatever artistic expressions in the years to come. Uh, well, we'll have to wait and see. Andreas, your grandparents were Masurians from the southern part of East Prussia. They were farmers. They were forced to leave their home at the end of the Second World War. Is that experience part of what shaped your approach to this theme? This picture of the Masurian village where my grandparents came from was all their lives in their living room. And, you know, it's just a black and white framed photograph. But for them, it was like a relic. It was an icon. It was a reminder of what they've lost. And, you know, it's not political. It's just very personal. You just see the, the farm they lost. They never, and, and they were farmers. And it is really so typical that something rather trivial all of a sudden becomes very important. Because this is the only material connection to their lost homelands. Did your grandparents ever talk about their experience of expulsion and flight? The story of the flight was always present, but what wasn't present was actually, or they never talked about their homesickness, but it was something we actually felt. 
as children or grandchildren, it was there. And how did it manifest itself? I would say that they never ever arrive fully in West Germany, even though they, they lived for more than 60 years in West Germany, but they never called it home. And when they talked about Heimat, Zuhause in German, it was always there in Missouri, but not in West Germany. So they never set roots again. They remained in exile, actually, until the end of their lives. Perhaps you only really know how deeply you belong to a place when you were forced to leave it. Exactly, exactly. And this is actually, um, the German word Heimat doesn't translate very well into English, but since 2018, the Interior Ministry, they added the word Heimat Ministerium to it. So we actually have a Heimat Ministerium. And we saw over the last years a sort of renaissance of the word Heimat. And of course, all of us, we have different approaches, what we call home. It could be a place, it could be a feeling, it could be family members. But for refugees, home is something which is missing. So their reference to Heimat and home is not a luxury debate. You know, it's, it's, it's not about, oh, what do you think? What means home for you? For them, they have to come to terms with the loss of home. So when as I actually look at maybe a talk show in, uh, on German television on the topic of home, they find it a luxury discussion because they lost something other people take for granted. I think that is very important to understand whatever we define as the word home is missing and they have to either replace it or come to terms with it. And I think that's the challenge every refugee carries very often until the end of their lives. And sometimes they pass it even on to the second or third generation. Do refugees ever return to the places they come from? Given the experience you've documented in this book, what kinds of challenges do they face? Well, they very often return to regions which have been ruined by war. And if we look, for instance, at the example of Bosnia and Herzegovina, where the majority of refugees returned, but until now we see actually this almost tribal ethnic conflict. And so for them coming to terms with a new reality, living in a very familiar surrounding, but still they are also confronted by loss and conflict and, and also not to forget trauma. And I think returning is also a very difficult challenge. But what I would actually like to stress is most refugees have no possibility no, uh, to return. And, and for most of them, it's actually a destiny without a return ticket in their pocket. And I think it's also part of the refugee experience that refugees, when they arrive somewhere else, don't realize mostly for a long time that they have no possibility to return. So they live actually in this very ambivalent space between actually having to settle in their new lives, but also longing to be home. And this is the dilemma all refugees face. I think what actually summarizes the universal refugee experience is a quote by the writer Alexander Hemmen, um, who lives now in America, but is originally from Bosnia. So he actually knows what it means being a refugee. And he's saying, the world is full of people who left the place where they were born just to stay alive and then die in a place where they never expected to live. 
Andreas, thank you for helping us to situate the plight of the Ukrainians in, in its proper context, the context of exile and flight over many, many centuries. Thank you so much, Andreas. You've been listening to Germany Now, a podcast of the Cambridge DAAD German Studies Hub. And there'll be another episode along soon. Goodbye. Dennoch ist klar, vor uns liegt noch ein Weg mit Gewalt. Dass wir alles dafür tun müssen, dass Europa stark und souverän ist. In einem freien und geeinten Deutschland. Germany Now was presented by Professor Chris Clark. It's a TDC production. The music is by Alexander Clark. And the producer is Trevor Dan.